true in cities because cities are places where people hold all sorts of beliefs. And as the gospel impacts lives in a city, we can expect that opposition will follow. That's what we see here in the life of Stephen, one of the leaders of the Jerusalem church in Acts chapter 6, beginning in verse 8. This is God's word. Now Stephen, a man full of God's grace and power, did great wonders and miraculous signs among the people. Opposition arose, however, from the members of the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, Jews of Cyrene and Alexandria, as well as the provinces of Cilicia and Asia. These men began to argue with Stephen, but they could not stand up against his wisdom or the spirit by whom he spoke. Then they secretly persuaded some men to say, We have heard Stephen speak words of blasphemy against Moses and against God. So they stirred up the people and the elders and the teachers of the law. They seized Stephen and brought him before the Sanhedrin. They produced false witnesses who testified, This fellow never stopped speaking against this holy place and against the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs of Moses handed down to us. All who were sitting in the Sanhedrin looked intently at Stephen, and they saw that his face was like the face of an angel. And the high priest asked him, are these charges true? What we see in the next 50 verses is Stephen responds to their accusations based on lies with a sermon essentially based in the truth. The truth that he wasn't a heretic. He believed the same about Moses and God's law that they did. The truth that God sent Moses to deliver his people and gave his law for his people to live by. And, and yet he also spoke the truth they didn't want to hear that God's people had consistently rejected his law just as they've rejected Moses and Joseph and the prophets and anybody else that God would send to deliver his people. And now Stephen tells them history has repeated itself in their rejection and murder of Jesus of Nazareth. See, before a court seeking the truth and, and really wanting to uphold God's law, Stephen spoke the truth about their own lawlessness. How would they respond to the truth? As we skip ahead a few pages to chapter 7, verse 54, we see their response. When they heard this, they were furious and gnashed their teeth at him. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. At this, they covered their ears and yelled at the top of their voices. They all rushed at him, dragged him out of the city, and began to stone him. Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their clothes at the feet of a young man named Saul. While they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. And Saul was there giving approval to his death. On that day, a great persecution broke out against the church at Jerusalem, and and all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him, but Saul began to destroy the church. Going from house to house, he dragged off men and women and put them in prison. Persecution. It's a subject that brings up a lot of questions for us. Questions like, what does that actually look like? Uh, what, what causes it? And how can you endure if it comes your way? If those are the questions, then this passage we looked at is the answer, as it shows us three things. It shows us the reality of persecution, the root of persecution, and the response to persecution. 
First, it shows us the reality of persecution. It shows what it looks like. It actually shows it's a progression, a growing opposition to the ministry of Christ's church. Here it began when men began to argue and dispute with Stephen. And yet after a while, maybe weeks, they realized that this wasn't a battle that they could win, that they couldn't stand up to his wisdom or the the spirit by whom he spoke. They were like poker players sitting there at the table watching their chips get shorter and shorter with every hand. They they realized that they were outmatched, that they, they couldn't win straight up. The only way that they could win was to play the ace up their sleeve, to play dirty. So in verse 11, we see what started as a dispute grows into slander as they they secretly persuaded men to say they heard Stephen speak blasphemy. And soon their social campaign gave way to a legal campaign as he was drugged before the Sanhedrin, the court of their peoples. False witnesses would testify him to the types of things that were worthy of a death sentence if convicted. Before, they just wanted him silenced. Now they wanted him taken out. And in the midst of it all, Stephen continues to testify to the truth. So at the end of chapter 7, we see the opposition had grown violent and even deadly as an angry mob drags Stephen away and hurls stones at him until he could speak about Jesus no more. The coroner's report on Stephen would have read like this. Bruises and cuts all over the body. Broken bones crushed under the force of all the hurled stones. Cause of death. Multiple blunt force traumas, literally beaten to death by the hurled stones. We see in chapter 8, feels like an understatement, where it says a great persecution broke out that day, where for many evading death uh, meant forced relocation as they were scattered throughout Judea and throughout Samaria, while for many others it meant imprisonment, not because of something they've done, but simply because of who they are. You see, because persecution isn't simply reactive, but sometimes often proactive, Saul started going house to house to hunt them down like the German Gestapo in 20th century Germany, Europe, going door to door until none could escape. The last days of the life of Stephen here in Acts paint us a picture of persecution. And yet what he experienced wasn't unique to his time. We've actually seen it throughout history. In ancient Rome, it looked like the Colosseums where people would gather to watch Christians fed to hungry lions as the crowds cheered. Uh, During the French Revolution, it was what scholars call now the de-Christianization of France, where church properties were seized, clergy were expelled or killed, and visible signs of Christianity were systematically removed. 20th century Germany, uh, it looked like members of many churches being persecuted because they resisted Nazi ideology, which sought to make the church simply a pawn of Hitler's regime. And as we see it today, around the world, it still happens. A while back, uh, Greg mentioned the story of Asia Bibi. She's a Pakistani, a Christian, and a mother of five who in 2010 was sentenced to death on trumped-up charges of blasphemy, brought on by an instance where she drank from the same water bowl as her Muslim co-workers, something they deemed her unworthy to do. If this Presbyterian church we're in today, we're not in St. Louis. Let's say it was in Syria. It might look like the church you see on the walls here, the uh, Presbyterian Church of Homes, Syria, following a bombing by ISIS. You see, when ISIS comes to town and you're a Christian, you are given three very clear choices. You convert, you leave, or you die forced relocation on one hand, suffering violence on the other, which is why throughout history, the persecuted church has often been the immigrant church, 
In fact, today, uh, living in the country of, uh, what's right next door to? Lebanon. There we go. Country of Lebanon currently has a population of six million. Two million of those are Syrian refugees, a full third of the country. Back in 2012, the Frankfurt-based International Society for Human Rights estimated that up to 80% of acts of religious persecution are actually directed at those of the Christian faith, while just last year alone, 90,000 Christians were killed, martyred for their faith, just like Stephen. Paul Kim, a uh, Korean pastor, put it this way, normal biblical Christianity is, is persecuted Christianity. But what about us? I mean, come on, like, aren't Americans in the modern West the exception to the rule? You see, as we look at this progression of what opposition looks like for Stephen and others, we might wonder, well, at what point does opposition become real persecution? And that question might be because we've mistaken the nature of persecution. In fact, when we look at Jesus' take on the subject, we find he speaks about it a lot more broadly than you'd ever expect. In Acts chapter, actually in Luke chapter 6, He says that it's not only what includes violent treatment, but that it also includes being hated, excluded, insulted, rejected, and judged as evil simply because you're his follower. Showing that there are many shades, there are many degrees of persecution. Most likely we see it as public statements here that pressure Christians to either remain silent about their faith and their views, to conform to those that are around them, or or to suffer their culture's consequences. A couple weeks ago, we heard about Ken Elziga, uh, who, while he was seeking tenure as a professor at the University of Virginia, was, was told it was better for his career if he kept his faith quiet. I remember seeing it in my 20s, the first time I worked in a research laboratory, when uh, one of my coworkers was publicly ridiculed in the laboratory lunchroom when word got out that they prayed, a type of dynamic that a number of you have, have reported seeing in your own workplace can look like pressure to abandon Christian principles or practices or, or compromise your integrity in order to keep your job or to be accepted by a peer group. Often, actually, it looks like just being misjudged because you don't conform to the norms of your culture. Maybe it looks like having your sexuality questioned when you refuse to watch that video circulated by your coworkers, the one labeled not safe for work. Maybe it's being judged as lazy when you don't conform to a workaholic culture at your job that already has cost three of your coworkers, their family, and their marriage. Maybe it's being judged as, as unenlightened or even hateful when a culture shifts and suddenly your view on an issue becomes the minority issue. And maybe the most heartbreaking form of persecution actually comes from where you would least expect it. Remember that in a sermon, not only Stephen, but also Jesus in his sermons talked about the treatment of God's prophets as the prime example of persecution. And their ministry wasn't to spiritual outsiders, but to spiritual insiders. It was to call the people of God back to living like the people of God, which means persecution can also come from professing believers who have adopted the ways of their surrounding culture and then lash out at people who call them to repentance. Back in 2015, the vice president, and at the time for 20 years, the chaplain, of a Christian college here in America, was asked to resign, and then when he refused, was fired in the middle of the semester following a controversial sermon where he said these very controversial things, that it was dangerous to equate patriotism with Christianity, and that you shouldn't let your political interest override the words of Jesus. It's a sermon he wished he never had to preach. 
and yet it was something that he felt he needed to preach. You can just imagine what it was like for him lying in bed the night before, staring at the ceiling, tossing and turning, checking the clock, and staring back at the ceiling, just crying out to God, God, what would you have me do? He would have been thinking of, of all that it took to get him to where he was in his career. He would have thought of, of the people that he'd ministered to, those that he'd wept with, those that he'd prayed with, those that he'd rejoiced with. He'd think of his wife's related job, which likely would be gone if his was gone. He was thinking of all sorts of things that would be gone in an instant. And all he had to do to keep them was to stay quiet about how he saw his community trading in the hope of the gospel for political power. You see, he'd read the Bible. He knew that it often didn't end well for those who preached, not on the sins of those people out there, but the sins of one's own community. Karl Barth, the 20th century theologian, said it well when once asked, well, who killed Jesus? Who was the real ultimate persecutor? And answered simply, religious people killed Jesus. What underlies all of this? I mean, if these are the branches, what's the root? Like, what could possibly cause those outside and inside a faith community, overseas, in your own backyard, throughout history, and even in our own time, to all have such a similar negative response against those who seek to follow Jesus? What's the root of Christian persecution? Well, first, just to be clear, when we talk about Christian persecution, we're not talking about suffering as a follower of Jesus, it's not, if you get a flat tire and you're a Christian, that's not persecution. We're talking about suffering because you're a follower of Jesus. See, in John 15, 20, Jesus tells his disciples that a slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, he says, they will also persecute you. In Matthew 24, 9, Jesus says, then you'll be handed over to be persecuted and put to death, and you'll be hated by all nations because of me. In fact, in Acts chapter 9, when the risen Jesus Saul about his attempts to destroy the church here, he doesn't ask him, why do you persecute them? He asks, why do you persecute me? Jesus says that persecution is actually about, about him. And yet the reality is sometimes what we suffer actually is about us. The apostle Peter, when he wrote his first letter to the persecuted Christian church, in chapters 3 and 4 made a distinction between suffering for doing good and suffering because you're just insufferable. Uh, suffering because you are uh, representing Jesus and suffering because you misrepresent him and his gospel. And that difference matters because not every form of hostility or rejection that we experience that feels like persecution actually is Christian persecution. And there's a way that you can tell the difference. First of all, if someone is reacting to your own sin, that's not Christian persecution. People reacted to me a lot when I was in high school. I remember getting uh, invited to absolutely zero parties all four years of high school, but hearing about them after the fact. Uh, they didn't want me there. Back then, I, I would walk the halls of my high school with wearing my Christian t-shirt, my WWJD bracelet, and occasionally I would make the mistake of opening my mouth and letting people know just what I thought of them because of the decisions that they were making. I thought I was being rejected because I was the good Christian guy. I was more like the really judgmental guy that you didn't want to meet and kind of egotistical to boot. I saw this difference um, when I was talking to a friend um, who I used to DJ with. Uh, he was talking about his own hostility towards those who he would see post online who professed to be believers and, and how this person or that person is going to hell for whatever reason. And, and so I asked him, it's like, you know these people, right? And he goes, yeah, you've known them for a while? Yeah. 
Well, have you ever heard them say that same type of thing about themselves, about their own sin, that if God were actually dealing with them justly, that they too would deserve his judgment? And he paused, and he, he kind of looked at me strange, like he'd never expect that to even happen. He says, no. They'd never said they were no better than others. No. And I realized his hostility wasn't rooted in the offense of Jesus or his cross. He'd actually never heard that, but simply the offense of others' own sinful, self-righteous pride. It wasn't because they represented Jesus. It wasn't because I represented Jesus and his gospel. It was because we misrepresented Jesus and his gospel. Second, if we feel personally offended, it's probably not persecution that we're feeling because Jesus says persecution is actually about him. So if you find yourself hot under the collar because your pride is offended, you're feeling something other than Christian persecution. Third, Christian persecution doesn't feel like righteous indignation because a Christian knows that their only righteousness is in Jesus Christ, not their moral superiority, not their perceived reputation. As another pastor put it, the reason a believer experiences opposition is due to anything other than their identity with and obedience to Christ, then what happens to them is actually not Christian persecution. But if it is provoked by submission to Christ, if it is provoked by obedience to his commandments, if you know you could just betray Jesus and your problems would immediately go away, that's Christian persecution. Jesus says it's about him. His followers would experience it because he experienced it. So why did Jesus experience it? I mean, those perfect, you know, like God in human form, why was he persecuted? Well, first, he was often misunderstood. In Acts chapter 6, verse 14, we saw it, um, that Jesus' mistaken words about the, the temple of his body uh, being destroyed and then raised from the grave were misinterpreted as a threat against the Jerusalem temple. You see, Jesus was speaking of his resurrection, something that totally didn't fit their categories, and frankly, Jesus didn't fit their categories either. You see, because he was often seen eating and drinking with social outcasts, he was accused of being a drunk and a glutton. You see, given their cultural assumptions of holiness by separation, they couldn't imagine a good reason for him to be with the people that he was with, so they just imagined a bad reason for it. And if Jesus was misjudged and reviled for it, so would his followers be. We see it throughout history. In fact, historically in the ancient Roman Empire, Christians were reviled for the exact opposite reasons that people in the modern West tend to look down on them today. Uh, for example, because Christians had no uh, public temples or statues of their God, they were actually suspiciously viewed as atheists, as being not religious enough. While today, many look down on Christians who do bring their faith into the public sphere as being too religious. Back then, because Christians referred to each other as brothers and sisters in Christ, including their spouses, it was rumored that their marriages were actually incestuous, that Christians were judged as those who recognized no boundaries when it comes to sex and marriage. On the modern Western culture, Christians are more likely to be judged if they do recognize such boundaries. See, in any culture, the more someone resembles Jesus, the more likely they're going to be received by Jesus, and the more likely they're going to be misunderstood because of it and judged because of it. And yet, Jesus wasn't just rejected because people didn't understand him. Frankly, he was rejected a lot, even more so when people did understand what he was saying. You see, in multiple places in the Gospels, you, you see Jesus standing before the same court, the Sanhedrin, and speaking about himself as the Son of Man, being exalted to the right hand of God, something they clearly knew was a claim to his divinity. And yet they heard it as blasphemy, and so they were determined to see him dead. 
So it should come no surprise in our passage when Stephen declares the same reality of the exalted Jesus before the same people, he gets the same response for the same reason. The reason is, if you think about it, if Jesus really did rise from the dead, if Jesus really is who he claims to be, if Jesus really is Lord, not, not ourselves, it actually undermines not only our desire to be, to be judge over our own lives, but our desire to be judge over other people's lives. Bearing witness to Jesus actually means bearing witness to someone who undermines all other gods, ideologies, and, and claims to absolute power, which is why Christianity has always been seen as a threat to any totalitarian regime throughout history, whether a religious one or a secular one. You see, if your life testifies to Jesus being Lord in a world full of rival lords, whether money or sex or power, Jesus says persecution will come, as 2 Timothy 3.12 puts it, indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ will be persecuted. And if that's the promise, when faithfulness eventually leads to persecution, how will we respond to that? See, by nature, persecution is meant uh, to weaken your resolve, to produce despair, to make you wonder, is it still worth it to follow Jesus? can easily foster bitterness in our heart or even a judgmental, self-righteous attitude towards either our persecutors or those who simply resemble them because they're part of the same religious community or the same political party. And yet what we see in Stephen is, is actually very different. Confidence, boldness, and peace. At the end of chapter 6, the Sanhedrin even noticed it. They said his face was like the face of an angel. At the end of chapter 7, we see his response even includes forgiveness when he says, Lord Jesus, do not hold this sin against them. You see, while those from the, the freedmen community were willing to lie and manipulate, cheat, slander, and kill for what they believed, we see in Stephen someone willing to tell hard truths, to speak truth to power, and even to forgive because of what he believes. And maybe when we hear about Stephen, or we hear about others, we think, I could never do that. How is that even possible? I'm not strong enough. I'm not bold enough. I'm not courageous enough. But then if you think that's the issue, take another look at Stephen. In chapter 6, verse 8, Stephen is described as a man full of God's grace and power. In other words, once again, it's not about us. Not about our power. It's not about our strength. It's not about our ability. Because it wasn't that way for Stephen either. You see, what enabled him was God's grace and power working in him. See, when everything is about us, we rely on our own strength, our own resources, our own abilities. But when it's about Jesus, we'll actually turn to him and his resources. When everything is about us, we just look to our circumstances. And in this passage, we see Stephen's circumstances crystal clear. In chapter 7 and verse 54, it says that the crowd was furious at Stephen. And they were, as the reply that they got showed their contempt. They were gnashing their teeth at him. In other words, like grinding them together, almost like, like an animal would show your teeth to them. We've got a picture of that up here. Not the actual people 2,000 years ago, of course. If you see that, you know what's coming next. You know it's not pretty. That's what was before Stephen. Uh, but that's not where Stephen looks. You see, in the next verse, we actually see that he doesn't look to his persecutors. He looks up. He looks to Jesus. Thank you. See, that's where his focus lies. Not in his circumstances, but on his Lord. Remembering Jesus' promise, not only the promise that he would experience persecution, that that would come, but also the promise that there's reward would come. See, as Stephen 
gets a glimpse of the throne room of heaven in verse 55. It says he sees the glory of God. In other words, his beauty, his majesty, his, his holiness. In other words, the reward before Stephen is none other than God himself. See, the reason that he can be so sure of this is not because of his own abilities, not because of his own accomplishments, but actually because of what he sees in the very next verse. Jesus, it says, standing at the right hand of God. And that image matters. Because as Tim Keller points out, back then, you didn't have a separation of powers. The king was also the judge, which meant the throne room was also the courtroom. And even if Stephen is standing before the court of the Sanhedrin, it tells us that he's actually standing before a greater courtroom in heaven. And there he sees Jesus, not sitting, but, but standing like his own advocate, like his defense attorney, commending him before God, even while the Sanhedrin was condemning him before men. Jesus says that all of those who endure persecution for his sake, he says to them, great is your reward in heaven. And here God is like pulling back the curtain. Stephen gets a behind-the-scenes look at what that reward looks like, not in the future, but in the present. And Jesus could do that for him because Jesus, too, once stood before a human court in a trial where he was reviled but did not revile in return, in a trial where he was struck but did not retaliate, a court where he, as the innocent, was condemned as guilty. And as he was punished, as he found himself receiving judgment on behalf of those who were not innocent, it was knowing that the guilt that he absorbed was our guilt. And then if our trust is in him, then we too can look to him as our advocate, as our substitute, as our savior. As Jesus prayed from the cross for his persecutors, Father, forgive them. We see he's not only willing to do what was necessary to secure that forgiveness for them, but to secure that forgiveness for us. One who overcame, not in spite of persecution, but actually overcame through persecution. What happens if this is the Jesus that we see? Well, it does something to us. See, it actually undermines retaliation in our own hearts because as we see the one who himself did not retaliate against us in our sin, but instead paid the price for our sin, it actually bursts compassion for our persecutors and those who mistreat us just the way Jesus showed his persecutors, the way Jesus shows us when it was our sin nailing his feet to the cross. He didn't retaliate, but he endured to secure our rescue. When he prayed, Father, forgive them, we realize he was praying just as much for us as he was for those physically nailing his feet to the cross. And we see Jesus. He gives us the same thing we see in Stephen's life. Courage, peace, faith in the face of opposition, giving human realities divine perspective. One where faithfulness that leads to the world's condemnation actually leads to a greater judge's commendation and reward, confidence, boldness, and peace by putting everything else in a new light. One person who saw that reality is Habila Adamu. We've got a picture of him, I think, up here on the wall, Habila and his family. Habila and his family were awakened by the sound of someone pounding at their door late at night at their home in a small community in northern Nigeria. It was about 11 p.m., so they realized this wasn't a friendly visit. It was either an emergency or an attack on their village. The pounding of the door continued, and so he, he quickly got dressed and then brought his wife and his, and his children with him out in the family room, only to find intruders dressed in masks and cloaks. 
and he knew who they were. One of them was having, uh, had an AK-47, and they continued to question Habila. Are you in the military? Are you a police officer? Are you a Christian? Or are you a Muslim? He prayed a short prayer, knowing that these men were with Boko Haram, and calmly said, I am a Christian. Vivian, his wife, was terrified in the midst of this because she knew what was coming next. The intruders told Habila that they were willing to let him live and to help him live a good life if only he would become a Muslim and say the Shahada, the Islamic profession of faith that talks about there being no God but Allah and Muhammad as being his messenger. They even asked him if he wanted to join Boko Haram. All the while, Habila was preparing to die. He said, I'm a Christian. I will always remain a Christian, even to death. Turning to Vivian, his wife, one of the men said, If your husband does not cooperate with us, you will watch him die. Believing that her husband's death was imminent, she simply wept. The intruders repeated the offer to Abila, and again he refused. They asked her, her, um, his wife, Why is your husband so stubborn? They asked, Why can't you convince him to deny Christ and live a good life. Habila responded, don't worry, to his wife, even as the rifle was aimed at his head. The death of a Christian is great gain. It's, it's not a loss. The men looked back at Vivian and demanded that she bring to them all the money that she had. So she scoured the rooms of, of all of their house, getting everything that she could, and brought it to them, hoping it could spare her husband's life, but it, but it wasn't enough. The man with the AK-47 placed the barrel next to Habila's mouth. Since you refuse to become a Muslim, he said, here is your reward. And he pulled the trigger. Bila fell down on the floor as blood streamed from his face. Vivian just cried out in horror. The attackers threatened uh, to kill Vivian and her children if she tried to get help. The, the men then kicked Tabila's leg just to make sure that he was dead. And then believing that they've done their God's work, they left. Minutes passed as the pool of blood surrounding Habila's head grew. Vivian cried over her husband. To her surprise, she actually heard a gasp. I'm alive. Please get help. Her heart was filled with hope, and so she, she rose quickly to the floor, and, and she struggled, not realizing they'd actually locked her in the house, but eventually she was able to, to break out, go to her neighbors, and the neighbors called the police for help. But the help never came. It was 6 a.m. the next morning before Habila was brought to a hospital. During that attack, in November of 2012, Boko Haram raided the homes of more than 30 members of Habila's church. Every single one of them refused to renounce Jesus Christ and chose to die rather than turning their backs on him. Habila and his family found out that they were the only survivors. He was transferred to several hospitals in an attempt to save his life. One doctor looking at his medical records later said it was a miracle that he actually survived. Today, Habila is alive continues to share his testimony with others. He's often asked, uh, how does he feel about those who shot him? And he replies like this, well, actually, we are all condemned criminals, but Christ died for us. He loves us. That's why we must show that kind of love to the people that hate us. Since that day, I pray to God, God forgive them, God forgive them. My prayer is that they too will know the truth and be saved and be set free and not be condemned. How do I feel about them? I love them. If I have the opportunity to see them again, I will 
I will hug them, pray for them in person. When asked how he could forgive the men who tried to kill him, Habila simply replied, because Christ is love. Habila saw Jesus. See, just as persecution is really about Jesus, so is the ability to endure it, to stand up under it. Because it's not about us, it's not about our ability or our resolve, but about Christ, the one who loved us when we were his enemies and died for us so that we can love our enemies. The one who stands commending us before a heavenly court, even when the world condemns us for following him. The one who suffered on the cross for us so that we could endure any suffering that comes our way with peace and confidence, boldness, forgiveness, remaining faithful to the one who was faithful to the end. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you for the bold love of Jesus. Father, for the one who looks at his human persecutors as us. Father, we realize that ultimately it was our sin that nailed his feet and hands to that cross. Father, as we experience opposition, as we represent Jesus more and more, Father, give us the courage. Father, protect our hearts from a self-righteous attitude that would, that would have hostility, that would go enraged against those that have hurt us because of our faith in Christ. Father, help us to see them the way Jesus calls us to see them, as those just like us who need your mercy. Father, transform our hearts. Give us the power, the strength, the courage to endure, not because of our own strength, but because we look to you and your cross. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Keith. The Lord be with you. And also with you. And lift up your hearts. We lift them up to the Lord. And let us give thanks.